From the Milken Institute, Leadership in a Time of Transition, Conversations with Mike Milken. It's really the story of all the people who made decisions, just like my parents, leaving their home to go to another country. It's those stories that actually make up who we are today. That's Deb Liu. She's the CEO of Ancestry.com. With a user network of more than 20 million people accessing over 30 billion records, Ancestry is the world's largest for-profit genealogy company. Liu's own roots are in China, where her parents emigrated from in pursuit of the American dream. She spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Deb, thank you for joining us today. It's great to see you. Thanks for the invitation. So you joined Ancestry.com as CEO less than a year ago in March of 2021. And Ancestry.com, for those that don't know, is the largest for-profit genealogy company in the world with revenues over a billion, an online database of more than 30 billion records, and a user network of more than 20 million people. And I know your 1,400 employees are making sure that everything works seamlessly. But before we go to ancestry, I thought it might be interesting to start with your own family story. It begins in China, moves to New York, then to South Carolina, and finally, as every entrepreneur wants to do, to Silicon Valley. Tell us a little bit about you and your family's journey. My parents actually came here for college. And what was incredible was they went to a country they'd never been to with just a couple suitcases and a few hundred dollars, and they started a whole new life. My dad used to tell me that he was so poor when he first got here that he would eat rice with milk, and that was all he had. It was just incredible to see their journey getting through college and then eventually getting jobs. They were in New York where my parents met and married. When I was six, we moved to South Carolina, and I grew up in a small town there. When I graduated, I went to Duke, and then I went to graduate school at Stanford. Now, one quarter of everyone of Asian ancestry in the United States lives in California, but I'm assuming that the majority of your elementary school or high school was not Asian in South Carolina. What was that like for you? So, you know, I actually went back and looked it up. South Carolina at the time was less than 1% Asian. And it was incredibly hard to be so different from everyone else around you. People would come up to us on the street and say, why don't you go back to where you came from? And I was a kid. And so in my head, I was thinking, New York? They're telling us to go back to New York? There just were so few people of Asian descent. And people felt the need to point that out constantly and to remind us that we didn't belong. And yet, for me, that was impetus to actually succeed and to say, you know what? We do belong. We're just as American as everybody else. New York to South Carolina, and then off to Duke. How did you pick Duke? Honestly, I needed a scholarship to go to college. My parents had saved up some money, but it was actually very difficult. And so I got a scholarship to Duke that covered most of the tuition. And it was an incredible adventure. Duke was so much the place I needed to be. And I learned so much there. Duke also is located in what's known as the Research Triangle. But Duke's also been known for basketball. And there was another school that was known for basketball. I know in recent years in China, basketball has become very, very popular, particularly 
Michael Jordan made it very popular. So when did you become or have you become a basketball fan? How can you possibly go to Duke and not be a basketball fan? Well, my husband, who I started dating when I was at Duke, is from UNC. And so I remember there's a friendly rival, maybe less than friendly rivalry between the two universities. And to this day, we still watch the games. How does this journey take you to Silicon Valley? So after I graduated from Duke, I spent a couple of years at Boston Consulting Group in Atlanta. And I had always dreamed of attending Stanford. And so I applied and I was fortunate enough to get an entry into the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And we got married. And a week later, we were in Silicon Valley. And this was 2000. And then there was a dot-com bust. And so Silicon Valley was a crazy place to be at the time. But it was such a great time also to be able to see the heart of Silicon Valley during such formative years. Well, that brings great memories back for myself, Deb, in that my wife Lori and I got married about a month before we headed back east to go to graduate school. So after Stanford Business School, you decided that the world of technology, whether it was eBay and then PayPal or Facebook, became a career path for you. How did that happen? You know, I kind of stumbled into tech, honestly. I had actually interned at eBay. So I was a seller on eBay and when they had an internship during my first year. So we had actually planned to move back to North Carolina or Atlanta. And it was just really hard to find two jobs across the country. And my husband was a lawyer. He's a startup lawyer at the time at a prominent law firm here in Silicon Valley. And so we said, well, it's probably easier for us to find one job than two. So I stumbled upon a at the career fair, a booth for PayPal. And I love PayPal as an eBay seller. And I walked over and I just said, I just want to tell you how much I love your product. And they said, do you want to interview? And I thought, not really, because I'm moving back east. But you know, Tim Wenzel, he was a recruiter who built a lot of the PayPal mafia, said, you want to just come in and meet us? And the next day I was there at PayPal. And a couple of weeks later, I had an offer. And right after graduation, I started. Well, that's great. Now, when you think about your decision to eventually become the leader at Ancestry.com, does your own immigrant family story draw you to this? You know, that's actually one of the stories that really resonated with me was as I was researching Ancestry, I found my mother-in-law's immigration papers. And not only did I find the card she signed and her signature, I found the kind of attestation of good character which actually had a woman from the church where my husband grew up who actually helped my mother-in-law come to this country. And so it's just so incredible to see the documentation of her journey here, the documentation of so much of my family's journey here as well. You know, we talked about the billions of records, but it's not the billions of records that matters. It's the one that kind of tells you a journey that you didn't have any vision of or visibility into. And it's really the story that it helps you craft. So the mission of ancestry that you are shaping. What is that mission? Our mission is to empower journeys of personal discovery to enrich lives. And when we talk about discovery and journeys, it's not just kind of records and a family tree. It's really the story of all the people who made decisions, just like my parents leaving their home to go to another country. It's those stories that actually make up who we are today. What has it been like since you took over the leadership of Ancestry and dealing with issues of keeping families together, letting families interact, letting families search for where their roots are? What surprised me most is just how passionate people are about the discoveries they made about their families. 
I have not been to a party where I mentioned that I'm with Ancestry that I've not heard an incredible story of something that people discovered, something about their heritage, or they did a DNA test and discovered new parts of their family that they had never met before. It's not just something static where you're putting together a paper family tree, but it's really discovering such unique things about your own family and then sharing it with others. How does this DNA capability that you spoke about help expand family searches? How do you go about it and what is it brought to bear? We have the largest DNA database in the world with over 20 million people who are part of our ecosystem. And what's really cool about it is that not everybody has the luxury of having their grandparents or their parents there. There's a number of people who are adopted. There are a number of people who are just discovering for the first time parts of their family that they had never known or they had lost touch with. And so with just a small sample of your saliva, you can actually discover your origins. You can discover living relatives. You can talk to them and connect with them through our messaging system. And you can figure out which of the 1,500 regions you're from as well. And so that's the power of DNA is such a story of discovery where you can actually discover all the people who came before you to make you who you are today. I know using DNA is a personal story for you. Can you tell us about your family and how your family interacted with the concept of getting the DNA relating to your father. Yeah, so my father, about a little over 10 years ago, was diagnosed with stage four non-small cell lung cancer. He was not a smoker, and so they were unsure where the cancer came from, and so they sequenced the DNA of the cancer itself. And that led to the discovery that there was a drug that's available called Traceva that had just come onto the market. It was recommended for those with that mutation that his cancer had, and it arrested the spread of the cancer long enough for him to meet my youngest daughter. And so he passed away when she was about five months old, but I still have photos of her in his arms in his final days. And I'm glad he had a chance to meet her. My father was diagnosed with advanced melanoma and I had concluded by the middle of the 1970s that science could not move fast enough to save his life. And so I moved back to California. So our two sons at the time would get to know my father. And he passed away about nine months after we returned. And so I think one of the keys of Ancestry.com is this living history of your family from that standpoint. So Lori and I are blessed with 10 grandchildren. Like anyone else, you're at some point, those grandchildren are assigned to do a family research project in school. And what a terrific way it is for them to get excited about their own heritage, where their family came from. Tell us about ancestry in the classroom. I think the power of ancestry classroom is that it's not just the output, which is the family tree, but it's really the experience of asking your parents and your grandparents more about their lives. It's really about that connection. It's about having kids really learn more about where they came from, but also learning more about the people that they love. And so we built Ancestry Classroom to provide access to every teacher in the U.S. where you can actually use it in your classroom for free. And through this program, teachers really help students understand their own family history and builds more resiliency when kids actually understand where they came from and that they're not just who they are today at a moment in time, but that they come from a long line of history that they should be proud of. And today we serve over 6 million students. We continue to invest in this program to do outreach and reach more students every single year. And it's a program that we're incredibly proud of. So 
I think it was around 1972, 73. I don't know what it was, but one day I looked up around my department and my group, and I noticed the majority of professionals were women. And it was quite unique 50 years ago to find that in almost any industry, particularly finance. The Milken Institute has 10 centers, and the vast majority of the heads of those centers today are women. And I know you've been committed for a long time to expanding the access for women in the workplace, both in innovation and particularly with greater access to venture capital. Tell us a little bit about that passion of yours. Yeah, absolutely. There was a headline that said, women grow share of venture capital significantly. And it went it had gone from like one and a half to maybe like 2% or something like that. And saying all women founding teams just get so little of the venture capital funding. And even mixed teams, including women teams, are only 12% in 2019, I believe, of the venture capital funding. And so if you think about that, 88% of funding is going to all male founding teams. And these are the teams that are investing in the innovations that will someday change our lives. And yet we're really missing out on half the talent that's there. And so encouraging women to both found companies, encouraging women to be seed funders, encouraging women to really become, to go into venture capital. That is something which I'm super passionate about. One of my friends founded a company and she said, I only pitch to venture capitalists who have daughters. And I asked her why. And she said, I've never had any success pitching to those who don't have daughters because they can't see in me what their daughter can achieve. And I thought that was very profound and also disappointing in some ways. And so I hope that that's something we will change in the future. So when I went to business school, there were very few women in my business school class. When my son went to Stanford Business School, I think 35 to 40% of the class was women. And today, at many of the leading schools, 50% of the class is women. And if you go to parts of the Middle East, UAE, and others, you will find more than 50% of the students are women. Tell us a little bit about your business school class at Stanford. It was around 2000 when I entered, and I graduated in 2002. And the school had made tremendous effort to recruit women to apply to the school. And I think now business programs are more women-friendly, and I'm really excited about that. Because that's where you learn where to get access to innovation, where you can build your network for the future. Instead of just talking about it, you created a nonprofit. Let's talk about that. When I first started, tons of product officers were women. And I learned from some of the best women product leaders in the world. And suddenly I noticed a few years later that women had started to disappear from the industry. And I couldn't figure out why. And actually what happened was in 2004, Google had decided to require a computer science degree to become a product manager. And so women who had entered the industry, been successful, couldn't get their next job. I spent years reaching out to other women product leaders and connecting with them and building a community where we would meet every three months and have dinner and talk more about the industry. And about four years in of doing the dinners, we decided to start our own conference. We opened up registration and for 300 spots, we got over 3,000 applications. And we realized there was such a need to build this community. We have something like 25, 30,000 folks in our Facebook community, as well as we have chapters in a couple dozen places all over the world, and we're doing hundreds of events a year. And so it's really brought together a lot of women who felt alone and wanted to learn from other women, to get support from other women. And so we've been able to build a community that's been really strong, and we're very excited about that. Interning at eBay, working at PayPal, spending many years at Facebook. How do you plan to use that background at Ancestry? 
I've had a chance to work at such amazing tech companies over the years, and I leveraged my learnings in those previous companies to help with the work that I do today. But Ancestry is actually really unique as well. It's not about doing a transaction. It's really about capturing something about your family and sharing it with them that no one else may ever know if you didn't spend the time to do it. And so I hope to bring that kind of tech background, but also to make sure that what we build at Ancestry is not just a tool to share information, but it's really about storytelling and actually building something that hopefully you'll give to your children and your grandchildren someday. So Deb, you've mentioned a number of times the ability to tell stories. How is that story captured? You start with yourself and you add your parents and you start branching out. And once you put in some people into your family tree, our system actually starts doing something we call hinting, where we basically take our records and we say, based on who you've put into the tree, here's all the things we know about them. Come take a look and tell us whether or not these are the right people. And there you start stitching together a story of maybe a place that your grandfather lived that you had no idea. Or maybe your cousin actually has a special record of maybe a marriage that might come with a newspaper article that has a photo of the wedding. And so you see this kind of come to life a little bit at a time as you unfold the story and you start adding records. And then beyond those records, you're seeing photos, you're seeing draft cards, you're seeing military records. You can actually see the names of your family in the 1940 census, for example. They put a star next to the person who actually answered the door and gave the information. One of the things that they used to store in census records is the occupation. So, you know, shopkeeper, engineer. And then you can supplement with your own stories. You can add your own photos and then tag the members of the family that appear in those photos and they actually show up in your tree as well. And so it's really that kind of storytelling where it's a mix of content records. We want to bring that all together so that when you come to your tree and you show it to your children, it's actually a living memory of all the people who came before. So you're leading a company still trying to come out of a pandemic. How are you taking care of your 1,400 employees? What are the company's policies? Are people working primarily digitally? How are you managing? During the pandemic, the employees of Ancestry didn't miss a beat. There's a lot of companies that talked about how challenging it was to go into lockdown, but the teams here were able to actually go into lockdown without losing momentum on our product. Over the last two years, people have changed their lives significantly. They've moved to different places. They have different setups than they did 18 months ago. And so one thing we launched recently is what we call Flexible Future of Work. We did a survey and people told us that going into work five days a week was not what they wanted for the most part. They wanted either a hybrid option or a remote option. And so we're offering everyone the opportunity to choose which option makes the most sense for them. And so rather than invest a ton in real estate and bringing everybody in, instead, we want to build a flexible team structure where teams can decide when they need to get together. We've trusted our teams for the last almost two years to deliver to our customers. And so we can continue to trust them for the next 10, 20 years to continue to do that, even as we change the work policies to give people more flexibility. So the last few years have also concentrated our efforts on diversity of the workforce. Tell us a little bit about the diversity of the employees at Ancestry.com. Diversity is one of our core values because we're building a product for everyone in the world. And so bringing together different communities, bringing representation of those who we want to serve across the world is really important. We also want to make sure that we're challenging ourselves and asking the hard questions. Hey, you know, how do we really think about diverse family relationships, for example? You know, it used to be you had marriage records, but things are changing. You know, people have different structures of their family, adoption, uh, genetic surrogate, those types of things. How do we 
think about building an inclusive product that represents what families look like today, which might be very different than families look like 200 years ago. And so part of that is really bringing together a diverse team because we are building a product for everyone in the world. And that means we want voices from all over to help us shape that product. Deb, I want to thank you today. And we couldn't be more excited about the role that Ancestry.com plays as families become more diverse all over the world and want to learn more about their roots and their heritage. And it was a delight having a chance to visit with you today. Thank you for the invitation. It was wonderful getting to know you. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.